you want to grab your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 2 tonight. We're going to kick off a series of sermons on Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 on the seven letters to the seven churches. I've tentatively called this evening's series, What Does Jesus Think of Heritage Baptist Church? And we're going to uh, be diving into these letters and see what they have to say to our to our own assembly in our own day. So while you're turning there, um, I found this article by one of my my favorite pastors and authors, Ray Ortland, And he wrote on his blog some time ago the following. Some years ago, a friend of mine used these three simple categories to objectify the stages of a church's rise and fall. Stage number one, movement. A healthy church is born as a burst of positive gospel energy. It's a sort of Pentecostal explosion of joy, a vital gospel movement. Such a church has a sense of mission, even a sense of identity. It's exciting to be in this church. Think of a steep upward trajectory. Second stage, monument. Given human weakness after a time, this movement becomes a monument. The spirit of the church changes from hunger to self-satisfaction, from eagerness to routine, from daring new steps of faith to maintaining the status quo, from outward to ingrown. It's easy not to notice, Portland writes, this shift at first. The self-image of the church might still be that of a vital movement, but deep within, everything is changed. Think of leveling off. The final stage, Portland writes, is mausoleum. If this trend is not arrested, that is, the trend from a movement to a monument, the church will decline and become a mausoleum, a place of death. The church as an institution may have enough social momentum and financial resources to keep turning on, but as a force for newness of life, it no longer counts. Think of a steep decline instead, a path of spiral. The responsibility of a church's leaders is to discern when their movement is starting to level off as a monument. It's at this crucial point that they must face themselves honestly and go into repentance and return to the costly commitments that made them great to begin with. They may need to deconstruct much of what they have become, which is painful. But if the leaders will have the clarity and courage to do this, their church will go into renewal and relaunch as a movement once more. Jesus will become real again, people will be helped again, and those bold, humble leaders will never never regret the price they paid. That was a blog called Movement Monument Mausoleum from February of this year. Just released a couple of about a month ago. And when I read that, my mind immediately turned, as maybe your minds turned, to the seven letters, uh, to the seven churches in Revelation. There we see exactly that trend taking place. We see young churches that were started as a movement that later, or, or, or presently, as, the, as John is writing this, in the midst of a monument setting, with fear of some of them becoming a mausoleum. And so Jesus writes these seven letters to these churches to warn them, to encourage them, but also to warn them that such a prospect is very real. Now, Revelation 2 and 3 is one of my favorite portions of Scripture. We know it as the seven letters to the seven churches. These are real churches. 
These are also representative churches. That is, the issues in these letters are relevant for all churches in all times. Vern Poitras writes, The churches mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3 number exactly seven, the number that symbolizes completeness. They stand for all the churches of that time and ours. In fact, the triumphs, the failures, the struggles of these churches are a kind of miniature catalog of the sorts of things that we can expect to find in other churches throughout history. George Ladd writes, John chose these seven churches with which he was well acquainted so that they might be representative of the church at large. Although each letter addresses a particular situation of a particular church, it is relevant for the needs of all seven of the churches and consequently for the universal church. And then finally, Dennis Johnson, if you haven't been convinced from the previous two quotes, these seven churches of Asia Minor represent the totality of Christ's churches scattered across the world and over time, and their problems are symptomatic of those confronting churches in all times and places. Now, there is a structure to these letters that I'll go ahead and give you. It's sort of a template or an outline that each one of the letters basically follows. Each one of the, in each one of the letters, there is, first of all, a command from the Lord Jesus to write the letter. And then there is a self-description of Christ, which normally corresponds to what he's going to address in the letter. Then there's a commendation or praise for the church. There's an accusation of sin. There's an exhortation to repent. And there's an exhortation to discern the truth of the preceding message. That is, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then there's a promise given to those who heed uh, the warnings. Additionally, the seven churches seem to fall basically into three kinds of groups. The first and the last letter, the first letter being written to the church at Ephesus and the last letter being written to the church at Laodicea, are both letters that are written to churches that are in danger of being unchurched. That is, of having their lampstand taken away. In the middle, the second and sixth letter, you have a letter written by Christ to faithful and loyal churches with nothing bad said about them. And it is unusual that those are both being persecuted the most. And then in the middle, the third, fourth, and fifth letter, you have sort of a mix, a hodgepodge with some faithfulness and some not so faithful, some, some not so faithful. Also, the order is somewhat geographical. If you were to look at a map and you were to position these churches and see where they were on the map, it sort of flows in a logical geographic progression, starting with Ephesus, the big port city, and then sort of branching out to nearby churches until it's reached all the seven. Now, the seven churches, I want to go ahead and give you just a general description of each before we dive into the first one tonight. You have Ephesus the one we'll be considering this evening, the doctrinally sound, as Kevin DeYoung says, navel-gazing church that has grown loveless and is threatened with having its lampstand removed. The second church is Smyrna, the vibrant, fearful church. You have Pergamum, the witnessing, undiscerning church. Then you have Thyatira, the loving Overly tolerant church. Then you have Sardis, the church of the whitewashed tombs. And then you have Philadelphia, struggling, strong church. And then you have Laodicea, the affluent, apathetic church that has grown lifeless 
and is again threatened with having its lampstand taken away. Now, the theme of all the letters is the desire of the Lord Jesus Christ to have these churches overcome in the midst of a hostile pagan world. And they all have various threats that are against them in accomplishing that. But let me give us some advice on the front end of this series for why I'm preaching it, why I'm not necessarily preaching it as well, and also for the way I want you to hear this series, okay? First of all, the reason that I'm preaching the series is a renewed burden on my heart that our church not as much as possible avoid the monument and mausoleum that Ray Ortland's referring to. We are a church that's been around long enough, that sort of had its traditions established, had its ways of doing things established, which is good in many ways, but as a tendency can also be blind to some of the very things that Jesus warns us about in these passages and not be aware of the good things that are happening that Jesus commends these churches for as well. And so that was sort of where the series was born. But let me give you a way, let me also give you a, just a, some advice on the way to, to hear these sermons and the way to listen. Listen to all the churches. Listen to all of them. Not just the ones that hone in on things that really upset you. It's so easy as we listen to these, to listen to these um, letters and, and dive into them and kind of unpack them and begin to explore them. We say, See, that's the issue that the church is dealing with. And if the church would get its act together on that issue, it would be doing so much better. When No, it's not necessarily one issue or one thing. But I want to encourage you also not just to listen for what other churches need to hear, but what not, and not even so much what our church needs to hear, but what you need to hear, what you need to hear. Don't think of this sermon series as a sermon about the church out there, that has nothing to do with the church that we are, nor let nor don't nor think of the the, uh, the sermon series as just the, a sermon series for the church that has nothing to do with me as a member of it. So listen for what you need to hear, what we need to hear, and not necessarily for what they need to hear. I think that's how the Lord Jesus would have us listen. So let me give you the brief outline for us tonight. We're going to look at, at five points um, in the first letter here. I'm going to read it in just a second. The points are the person, the praise, the problem, the path, and the promise. The person, the praise, the problem, the path, and the promise. Let's read Revelation 2, 1 through 7. Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who called themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, 
which is in the paradise of God. Point number one, the person. I want us to pause before we even dive into the content of the letter and think about the person who's writing it. That person is described in verse 1 as the, work, as the one who holds the seven stars, seven churches, in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Notice the two words that are used to describe the churches, stars and lampstands. What are stars and lampstands meant to do? Shine light into darkness. That's the only reason they exist. And that's the only reason they cease to exist. Church, we are stars. We are a lampstand. We are meant to shine in the midst of a dark world. And to the degree that that is not happening, to that degree and that degree only, does Christ have a word against us? And it's just, it grips me, even as we begin this, that all, as we begin this series, all the issues that Jesus addresses in the churches are issues related to them not behaving this way. Not behaving as stars, not, a, not behaving as a, a, the lampstand that they are intended to be. But I want you to notice how Jesus is described. He is described as the one who holds these churches in his hand and who walks among them. Jesus is near to his churches. He protects his churches. He walks with his churches. He holds his churches. He is involved intimately in the life of his churches. He is not one who is standing back here looking down at these churches saying, Church, get your act together. I'm going to come with a switch in a minute if you don't behave. No, he is walking among them. He is tender with them. He is close to them. He is near to them. He holds them. He protects them. He is involved. And such is the case with our church. The resurrected king of creation in the language of chapter 1, verse 5 who is the firstborn of the dead, we heard about that this morning, the resurrection, who is the ruler of the kings of the earth, the sovereign king of all, loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. He has freed us from the penalty of our sin. He has freed us from the power of our sin over us to dictate us and rule us. And one day he will free us from the presence of of sin, And he has called us, according to verse 6 of chapter 1, and made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. He is coming again. And it's, in the, it's, it's this vision of a Christ who reigns over all, who loves us, who's freed us from our sins, and who's called us out to belong to him that he addresses us. So don't ever forget that. He's not addressing these churches as some sort of aloof parent who only shows up to scream at his kids when they're getting on his nerves. No. He writes as someone who's laid his life down for these churches, who has forgiven these churches, who has purchased these churches, who calls them in verse 17 to not be afraid. Because he's the first and the last. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's defeated death. He's alive. All this. 
I wish I had the whole time just to preach the first chapter. But this vision of Christ is given to the churches at first, and he reminds them, I hold you in my hand, I walk among you. Please hear me that way. And that's the way he wants to be heard. He wants to be heard as someone who is tender and intimately involved, but just as he was on earth, full of grace and truth, and he has things to say that they need to hear. So that's the person. Now, if we stayed there, we stayed on that vision of Christ, and we lived there, and we never shifted from there, I would, my guess would be that we would not meet many of the problems recorded in these letters or fall prey to the, sin, to the sins that are recorded in these letters because we'd be so consumed with the person and mission of Christ. And that is what he reminds the churches of at first, is who he is in himself. Here's what Sam Storm says. In the final analysis, Jesus cares comparatively little about numerical size of a church, the cultural relevance of a church, the social influence or financial prosperity of a church. Those are small things to him. What matters most to him and must therefore matter most to us is whether a church holds forth his name, proclaims his gospel of which he is the center and obeys his words as guidance to govern its life and loves. The only thing that ultimately matters is the degree to which the church corporately and the lives of its members individually are shaped and fashioned according to the likeness of Jesus. And that's why, at the beginning, he reminds them of who he is. Second, the praise. That's the person. Second, the praise. What encouragement does he have for the churches, or for the church at Ephesus specifically? He has three things he wants to say to them, and they're recorded in verses 2 and 3. He wants to commend them, number one, for their hard work, their busyness in his service, he wants to record them or encourage them secondly for their rejection of false teachers. And he wants to encourage them third for their perseverance. So he commends them for being busy in service, orthodox in belief, and patient in suffering. What a great church. What a great church. These are the conscientious doctrinally sound, patient, enduring evangelicals of Asia Minor. First of all, he encourages them that they have worked hard and he has not gone unnoticed of their work. And in the book of Hebrews, we're reminded that God takes notice of our work for him. And in the same way with Jesus, Jesus says right at the beginning, number two, or in verse two, I know your works. I know what you have done. Your toil, that is your working to the point of exhaustion. I am aware of that. I am aware how you have poured yourself out for the benefit of the church. I have paid attention to your quickness to volunteer. I have paid attention to you showing up for work days and taking the jobs that no one wanted to take. Jim, golly, what is the worst job on the list that no one wants to take? Are there a lot of them? <laughs> Look, the bathrooms. All right, you have cleaned the bathrooms for 12 years. That's your job. I'm thinking, what's the, what's the thing that no one wants to do? Everybody looks, oh, I'm not going to take that job. But you've taken that job, and you've been quick to volunteer for it. You've served faithfully over many years in the same role. You care for children in the nursery. You cook meals for hospitality. You give money to poor Indian pastors. 
$6,500 worth. You're biblical in your parenting. You're striving for a godly marriage. You attend services. You tithe. You disciple young Christians. You work diligently at your job, all of which Jesus takes reference to, knowledge of, and says, good work. Good work. You've worked hard. Secondly, you've rejected false teachers. You've been able to sniff out error. In his language, he says, you cannot bear those with those who are evil. But if tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I mean, these are theologically astute, doctrinally sound Christians. They're able to tell whether or not, by what a guy is saying, whether or not it's biblical. He says, he says of this church, you don't just accept somebody because they name themselves to be a Christian. You listen to what comes out of their mouth. You listen to what their life screams. You pay attention to those kinds of things, and Jesus says, good, good for you. He says, you can't bear with those who are evil, and you've actually tested them and found them to be false. They don't meet the biblical criteria. They don't meet the biblical standards. They fall short of faithfulness. And, in fact, their behavior is evil. And Jesus says, well done. You value preaching and teaching sound doctrine. You're not afraid to point out error. You recognize shadiness in theological belief or practice. So you're orthodox, and Jesus says, well done. Well done. You work hard. You're orthodox. Number three, you're patient. You persevere. I know your works, your toil, and your patient, your patient endurance. And then verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Here's the two things. You have not only endured for a time patiently, but you've kept at it. You haven't given up. For years, decades perhaps, you have patiently endured opposition, you have patiently endured trouble and difficulty, you have patiently endured setback and disappointment, and you've not grown weary. You haven't thrown in the towel, you haven't given up, you haven't chucked it all aside and said, what's what's it worth anyway? No, you have been faithful. And Jesus says in the midst of all this church's hard work, rejection of false teaching, perseverance in the midst of suffering, Well done. And he commends them for who they are and what they have done. And notice as he begins to move in to the problem, he doesn't chastise them for any of the things he's praised them for. He doesn't go back to them and say, see, if you were less of this, then you wouldn't have these things against you. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, stop working so hard. He doesn't say, stop being theologically conscious and orthodox. He doesn't say, stop enduring faithfully. He doesn't say any of those things. Those aren't the problem. So what is the problem? Well, we see the problem in verse 4. And it's just one problem. It's a massive problem, but it's just one problem. I have this against you, the Lord says, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Some of your translations may say you have forsaken your first Love. Now, what does that phrase mean? 
you have forsaken your first love. Does it mean that you have forsaken love for Jesus Christ? Does it mean you have forsaken love for your brothers and sisters? Does it mean you have forsaken love for your neighbors who are lost and in need of the gospel? What does first mean? Does means you have forsaken your first love mean you have forsaken in first in time? Like your first love, the love that you had at first, you've forsaken that, but you've lost the, that love and feeling? You've lost the love that you had at the beginning of your Christian life? Is that what he's saying? He's not important anymore. Everything else is. Or is he saying first in terms of priority? That is, there's something in your life that you love more than me. Well, those aren't easy questions to answer. And, of course, there'd be other biblical texts that we could go to that would reinforce all of that. But what I believe is being spoken of primarily, what I believe, and I'm not alone in this, but what I believe that is primarily being referenced here in terms of love is not fundamentally love for Jesus, but love for others. Horizontal love not primarily vertical love. Now, why do I say that? First of all, I believe they love the Lord. They are, they have been, they have been devoting themselves and working hard in his service. They have been rigorously conscientious about their doctrinal commitments. They have patiently endured suffering. And Jesus tells them, when he tells them to repent in the, at the end of verse 5, to do the works, the works you did at first. The works, the things you are doing as a Christian, you've stopped doing. I don't believe he's saying you need to get your heart more engaged in the worship service. I don't believe he's saying you need to cry in your devotional time more. I don't think he's saying you need to get the gospel more inside of you and living in your heart so that you just overflow with joy in the Lord. I think what he's saying is you've stopped being loving. You've stopped being loving. Think about the church at Ephesus when Paul wrote to them in in Ephesians chapter 1 when he said at the beginning of the letter, and he commends them for the love that they have for all the saints and the hope in Christ that they have their faithfulness to him. And then at the very end of the letter, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 24, he says, Grace to all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. And isn't it amazing that he comes back to this church several years later, and love is the issue he takes up with. It's almost as if the Lord saw it at the very beginning of the life of that church, and the benediction that he closed in the first letter to the Ephesians was, Grace to all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. And at the beginning of the letter, he talks about love for all the saints. And he comes back to them, and the issue he has to address with them is love. He says, you have forsaken, you have forsaken your first love. Now, obviously, I don't want to come down too hard on those of you who, and I'm not going to come down too hard, because Obviously, our love for our for others is reflective of our love for God. That's clear in First John. You know, it, the, the, it's it's as if all those tubes in our heart are tied together. You can't love God and not love your brother. 
just like you can't love your brother and not love God. So I don't want to parse it out too much and saying, oh, you know, it's not love for God, it's love for others that's in view. I didn't say it's either or. I said primarily. What is the primary primary thing that John or that Jesus is touching on here? And as, and I believe it's love, horizontal love, love for brother or neighbor. Jesus comes to them and he says, I commend you for caring so deeply about what your church does and who your church is and who your church is not. But what about those who aren't part of the church? And what about those within your church that you are not giving yourself to in brotherly or sisterly love? No fellowship that's meaningful beyond a high, a sports conversation. And no witness. No vision, no purpose outside their own walls. Just maintain. Just be theologically orthodox and protect yourself from the world. And Jesus comes along and says, I love it that you hate what I hate. But do you love what I love, Ephesians? Do you love what I love? Do you love who I love? Not just what are you against? What are you for, Ephesians? He comes to them and says, listen, you've done a great job at keeping the world out of the church, but not as good at being the church in the world. And he comes to them and says, listen, give the gospel away or lose the gospel altogether. Churches that don't evangelize fossilize. Conscientious. Doctrinally sound churches are not biblical enough. They are not biblical enough. We can be proud of the good teaching we receive in our church and have Jesus against us. And let me just say this lovingly as one of your pastors, not in any way scolding at all. You search your hearts on this. doesn't apply to everyone. I don't have anyone particularly in mind except myself. If you are too busy to love Christians and the lost because of your other Christian commitments, your busyness is sinfulness. Could it be possible that some of us are succeeding at things that don't really matter? If someone kept a record of the way you spend your time and your money, what would they conclude about what you love the most? Jesus knows, and Jesus sees, and Jesus comes and he says, Brothers and sisters at Ephesus, you've, you've missed the point. It's a, you've allowed specific things. You, you've allowed good things. To keep you from the things. You've allowed things that are good that are meant to drive you and make you more that way, not make you that way. You've 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 allowed this 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 way the way you're behaving to to cause you to move into a, a maintenance kind of mode rather than a mission kind of mode. You've 
gotten so protective of yourself and so inward that you've forgotten that I made you to be an outward, to be outward, that I've made you to love. Paul said in First Timothy, the goal of our instruction is love. That's what we've been saying to you all along. We've called you to love, 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 and you've missed it. You've missed it. And so he says, let's look at the path back to that. Let's get back to Christianity 101 without losing any of these things that I've commended you for. But somehow, church at Ephesus, you have become, you have made Christianity more complicated. Not in any way undermining their orthodoxy, not in any way saying, you need to spend less time reading the Bible and thinking about theology. You need to do that less. See, that's the problem. You need to be more loving. And that kind of, no, no. He's not telling them that. Doctrine is not against love. But he's saying it is possible to be overly concerned about these things and lack love. So what's the path? Point number four. What's the path back? And again, I just reinforce, it's not stop being all the things I praised you for. (laughs) It's not that. It's not stop being this. See, this is the problem. You're just so concerned with doctrine. You're so concerned with identifying false teaching. And you're so concerned with, you know, patiently enduring and persevering and working hard that you've met. No. See, that's the problem. Some people would say that in our day. That's the problem. Churches are too concerned with what they believe. And, you know, if they stop trying to believe what Jesus believed and just try to live like Jesus, we'd be all right. No, 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 no. You don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. So what does he call them to do? He calls them to look back, look in, and look forward. Look back. Verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. There's look in. And then look forward. Do the works you did at first. Remember what it's all about to begin with. The goal of our instruction is love. Nothing counts except faith working through love. It's about love, not sentimentalism. It's about a robust, thick, biblical love for people. Not merely a concern for issues. People, Jesus says, are what matter. The people in this church, Ephesians, the people in this city, Ephesians, That's what you're here for. Love. Remember, that's what you were taught at first. That's the way you behaved at first. That's the way you lived at first. Go back. Repent of what you've become. Don't repent of the things I praised you for. Don't repent of your hard work. Don't repent of your patience. Don't repent of your sound doctrine. Repent repent of what that's made you. And look forward. Do the works you did at first. It's very simple. Just go back to what it's all about. Like the man who came to Jesus. Jesus, what's the, what's the biggest issue on the heart of God? What's the greatest commandment in the law? Go love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. On this hang all the law and the prophets. And somehow this church had forgotten. It's possible in the midst of all the struggles and difficulties that that churches have, the ups and the downs, the ups and the downs, 
to lose the main thing, to lose sight of what we really are all about, which is the greatest commandment, to love the Lord and to love our neighbor. And so Jesus calls them back to that. And then finally, what's his promise to them? What's his promise to them? Well, he has a negative promise and he has a positive promise. He has a warning and he has an encouragement. But they're both promises. And the fulfillment of them is going to be based on how they respond to it, whether or not they repent or not. He says in verse 6, or into verse 5, If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So there it is. If you don't, if you don't repent, you don't exist, Ephesians. If you don't shine, you don't exist. If you don't love, you don't exist. I will not have my earth sprinkled with unloving churches that are robust and doctrinally sound. No, I will not. And he removes it. Not shining, not making any difference, not making any dent, not penetrating the darkness in any way. No. You refuse to engage. I become enraged, he says, lovingly enraged. I remove your lampstand. That's what he says to the Ephesians. And then, what if they do repent? End of verse 7. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That is, they will enjoy eternal life in heaven. Now, isn't this is... The gracious Savior who laid his life down for them, who forgave them, who bought bought them with his own blood, comes to them now and says, what's it going to be, Ephesians? Is it going to be your lampstand staying where it is and shining even more as you repent? Or is it going to be your lampstand being removed because you refuse to do it? And where do we get the resources? Where do we get the power? Where do we get the encouragement to do what Jesus is saying? By the vision he gives us in chapter 1. The one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. The one who has made us. We, we, We figure out who Christ has made us to be, what we are in him, and what we're called to be. We are saved by the gospel for the gospel. And we get that again. All over again, we've got to get it multiple times in our lives. And it's in meditating on his great love for us that our love for others flows. As John Stott says, the cross is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled, but we have to get near enough to it for its spark to fall on us. That's what chapter 1 was all about. And that's the vision he gives to the church at Ephesus in chapter 2. Come back to the love you had at first. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, for this passage of Scripture, for the, for the opportunity to consider it together tonight. May we all have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And may we all respond by your grace in ways that are consistent with the remaining of the lampstand. That's all of our desire, I trust, that this church would remain faithful to you, growing, 
repenting, changing, being conformed more and more and more into the image of Christ. And so we pray that you would that you would bless bless us to that end, make it to be so. Make us to hear and apply and live what is central to you and to your heart, which is love. Love for God, love for others. We pray this in Jesus.